Coming up, the pennant races have been status quo, although there's been a slight shift in the NL East, the Field of Dreams game, a familiar face returns in San Diego, and an unknown in Arizona makes history as those are the top headlines in Major League Baseball. The NFL preseason commences for a majority of the league. I'll own in on the latest there, especially with the young quarterbacks, most of them coming out of the first round in this past year's NFL draft. Kawhi Leonard resigns with the Clippers, but despite his resume, can you fully trust him 100%? A major player is out at the U.S. Open, which commences two weeks from today. Summer continues to heat up, as well as what's happening throughout the sports landscape. I'll break it down and then some, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits as the Ides of August have arrived. The dog days are in full effect, but so is the sports world. That's what you've come for. Well, I'll be more than sure and happy to deliver it all as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 209 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, August the 16th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. Kawhi Leonard re-ups for a four-year contract to stay in LA with the Clippers, but it does bring up the question, despite his resume and what he's done in the league, can you push all of your chips to the middle of the table and count on him when it truly matters? 
an interesting debate that lies ahead later on in the podcast as we go across the association. One of the league's top stars may not start the upcoming season due to injury, and an old Wiley veteran will sign on for a 24th season in the NHL. I'll tell you where later on as we go across the ice. One of the all-time great tennis players and Roger Federer, who came back and performed at the French Open as well as Wimbledon, will not participate in the U.S. Open. I'll tell you why later on. We'll also get into some boxing, believe it or not, just a smidge as a big fight that was prepared to take place on Saturday between Errol Spence Jr. and Manny Pacquiao will no longer be the case. I'll share my thoughts on that. On the gridiron, some of the top picks in the NFL draft, mainly at quarterback, were front and center as the NFL's first full round of preseason games are in the books. I'll take a look at what's going on there, as well as my hero and zero of the week. As we all know, baseball is the only sport in town. I get that the college football and even the football fan, they're chomping at the bit knowing that their seasons begin two and three weeks respectively from this coming Thursday. We still have a ways to go before we even think about hockey and basketball as their training camps will start off next month. We have the US Open, which we all know Novak Djokovic will be going for history two weeks from today. And later on, I'll get into the tournament and a major player and one Roger Federer not participating in that. But with the pennant races eh, heating up, that's a big giant question mark. You could probably say so in the NL East. And we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks with the Mets. And I'd be sure that I won't go down that rabbit hole. Although I'll have a couple of things to say. But that won't be the main theme of the baseball segment. But when we look at what's taken place here over the last week. And think about this. With all those time frames between the start of seasons and training camps. We are now six full weeks to the end of the baseball season. So at this point. Seven weeks from now, we will start talking about October baseball. Can you imagine? That's how fast time is flying. And of course, Labor Day is just a few weeks away. But put that aside, let's get right into it. And we've had a lot to really digest here, especially over the last few days. When you look at what has taken place this past week, and before I even get to the divisions, I know the big theme was the lead up and especially... What took place in Iowa on Thursday with the Field of Dreams game? And I know it's been a few days and time has passed. But with that series between the Yankees and White Sox, a lot of people think that could possibly be a playoff matchup. Now, as of right now, the Yankees are two games back, one behind the Red Sox with a big series starting tomorrow. A very odd three-game, two-day series between the Red Sox and Yankees, and I'll touch on that later. But with the Yankees and White Sox having the setting being feet within the actual set of the Field of Dreams movie going back to 1989, Kevin Costner, you know the whole deal by now. And with the old uniforms and the players coming out of the cornfield and the old scoreboard and the announcers dressed in the bow ties and the round derby hats, certainly put a nice touch, not only with the movie, the backdrop, everything that entails what took place there Thursday night, And it looks like moving forward, you're going to see a Field of Dreams game for God knows how long. It would almost be like the Winter Classic to the NHL. This may be your Summer Classic. And we all know the Midsummer Classic is the All-Star Game. But considering that the All-Star Game has been a joke and far removed from when I used to love it as a kid. But with the success and with the way the game played out between the Yankees and White Sox, as we all know, White Sox had the big lead. The Yankees had the 
two two-run homers in the ninth inning. Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton to take an 8-7 lead. And then Tim Anderson with the heroics and the fireworks afterwards. 9-8, White Sox win. And with the day off on Friday going into the weekend, the Yankees, I'm not going to say showed you who's boss, but they certainly mean business here. As a team since July the 6th has been 23-11. Yes, they beat up on some bad teams. But here they are against a White Sox team where they're coasting and going away with the AL Central. A good litmus test, more so for the White Sox than for the Yankees. Because if you remember in May, they made their trek to Yankee Stadium and got swept. Most of the games were close. But with the Yankees having the advantage there and the White Sox wanting to flex their muscles, especially after that first game, they were looking to possibly take two out of three or even perhaps a sweep of their own to exact some revenge. And that wasn't the case as the Yankees flexed their muscles. Ronette Odor, Joey Gallo, and they made their way out of former Comiskey Park with the back two of three and into a week where they're going to face the Red Sox. But before that, a makeup game against the Angels tonight with Shohei Otani coming back to the stadium. Let's see if he continues to flex his muscles as he did when he was at the stadium last month. But you had that scenario with the Field of Dreams, and I loved it. I didn't watch every second of it, but how could you not like the setting? How could you not like the feel? I get it that it takes you to a time in baseball that nobody around witnessed. I mean, you're going back to the 20s and 30s, and there aren't that many people alive that have witnessed, let alone even watched from afar, the type of baseball that you saw with the old uniforms and the way the game looked during that era. But if this is something that they're going to do moving forward, then how could you say I'm not for it? Baseball needs everything to endorse, to promote their sport as they're slowly but surely and probably sinking fast considering that we have a collective bargaining agreement that needs to be broached and hopefully settled at some point this offseason because unlike the NBA, which is popular throughout the globe, and the NFL, we all know is bulletproof, Baseball needs every inch, every fan, every warm body to watch and follow their sport as closely as the other two sports that I mentioned, even though it won't be anywhere near. Now, we get that baseball is rich in tradition in this country. We all know it is now the former national pastime. But for some, like myself and maybe a little bit older, they're always going to look at baseball being number one in their eyes. So the game itself... Obviously, it helped when you had two good teams. Obviously, it helped when you had the comeback in the ninth and then the win in the bottom of the ninth. If it was a game where the Yankees or the White Sox won 10-3, to would it have that same allure? Would it have the same feel? It certainly helped that they had a great game. I don't know what the rating was. Who knows how many people watched? Because again, baseball isn't on many people's radar, especially if you're under maybe 35 or even 30 for that matter. So... With baseball being the only sport around, maybe a lot of people watched or people possibly forgot and realized that the game was on Fox. So when they turned it on, they were able to watch a couple of innings and maybe were able to see the drama unfold there in the ninth inning. But as I said, baseball needs a, not a quick fix, but they need something to get this sport resuscitated because there is a faction of this country that looks at baseball as possibly the third sport And with the MMA and maybe a couple other sports that I'm not even mentioning, maybe even as low as fourth 
on the depth chart when it comes to the top sports here watched in the nation. So we'll keep our eye on that moving forward if uh, that does come to pass. As far as what's happening now, I know the Padres got a huge boost yesterday as Fernando Tatis Jr. made his way back into the lineup. Here's a guy that has suffered three partially torn shoulders in his left side or his left shoulder and him not being able to be in a lineup and not have his flair and his enthusiasm, charisma, etc. Not going to say put the Padres out to sea in a sense where they're not going to catch the Giants in the division. We all know they're part of the wild card mix, although the Reds are creeping up slowly. But they have a good foothold of the second wild card. But having Tatis Jr. back and him hitting two home runs yesterday, you know that the Padres have breathed a sigh of relief. And mind you, he did play right field. They're trying to avoid him playing shortstop, which is his natural position. They want to put him out there to avoid making dives or attempts at balls, which could possibly put him in harm's way. And having him in right field, you just stick him out there. Hopefully, he'll just shag a few few flies, throw some players out, maybe on the base pass or certainly at home plate with a strong arm, and maybe right out the rest of the season with him playing the outfield. So that's something to keep an eye at as the Padres get their main man back. And let's see what kind of a lift he'll provide for San Diego, not only here, but down the stretch as they have a ton of games, which we'll get to from a scheduling standpoint. And lucky for them that they got Tatis back because they surely needed him. Because the night prior in Arizona, you had a kid named Tyler Gilbert pitch his first ever start in the major leagues. Now he has pitched in relief in a handful of outings, and of course it bounced around with different organizations, but as a member of the Diamondbacks, toned the rubber for the very first time in his career, and all he did on Saturday night against a good Padre team, even though without Fernando Tatis, he went ahead and made history as being the fourth player in Major League Baseball history to throw a no-hitter in his first start. Any idea who the other three guys are? Well, the last time it was done was back in 1953 by a guy named Bobo Holloman. Okay, Bobo Holloman, you won't know him from a hole in the wall. So, Jay Reels, who are the other two guys? I'm not even going to mention who those two guys because they have been long gone. Because when the other two instances, when that took place, was in 1891 and in 1892. So, for this to happen for the first time in 69 years, or 68 years, excuse me, my math is incorrect. 68 years between times where a starter threw a no-hitter in his first ever start, and then before that, you had to go back 50-some-odd years before that took place, and now my math is screwed up again because, yes, 53, subtract 51, and then 52, and you have 1892 and 1891. So, obviously, Jay Reels needs to get a refresher course when it comes to arithmetic. But you get the gist. Pitched a great game, 102 pitches, walked three, struck out five, and mowing down the Padres to the eighth no-hitter of the season. First time since 1884. Let's go back to the 19th century yet again to when the last time you had eight no-hitters pitched in a season. Tyler Gilbert was a guy who was out of baseball last year, and of course with the 60-game schedule, he was working alongside his dad as an electrician just to try to make ends meet. And then here he is back on a major league roster for the Diamondbacks and he throws a no-hitter. 
And what could you say? That's the beauty of baseball sometimes when you have somebody come out of nowhere and sports in general, but in this case, to get on the mound, left-handed pitcher, to get that no-hitter, something that obviously he and his family was in attendance that they'll never forget. But the sad part is, Tyler Gilbert, not to throw rain on your parade, but it is all downhill from here. I'm sure he's going to have some good starts. I hope he has some great starts, and I hope he goes on to have a great career. But could you imagine? What do you do for an encore? No hitter in your first ever start? No pressure for your second start because you would think that, not that you expect a no hitter, but you would hope to have a very good outing, him at least pitch with some length, six innings, seven innings. You don't want him going out there one and two thirds, seven runs, eight hits, four walks. Obviously, that's one thing and the last thing that's far from the mind of Tyler Gilbert and the Diamondbacks organization. But as I said, what is he going to do to follow up with that particular start? Certainly remains to be seen. And it also made me think of the last time a starter just a few starts into his career pitched a no-hitter and I thought of Clay Buckhold to the Red Sox and I want to say that was 2010, maybe 09, somewhere around there where in his second major league start he threw a no-hitter and Buckholz, who did have a good career flailed toward the end but Buckholz was the one guy that came to mind when you think of Pitchers who started their career as a starting pitcher or in his first few starts was able to throw a no-hitter and that was the one guy that came to mind. So to think eight no-hitters, that hadn't been one in a while. And it's interesting because then yesterday, less than 24 hours after that, you had Indian pitcher Tristan McKenzie go into the eighth inning against the Detroit Tigers with a perfect game. And with a lot of people in attendance at Comerica Park hoping to watch history of their own with their first baseman and now DH Miguel Cabrera as he's one home run away from 500, where McKenzie, with two outs in the eighth inning, gave up a single to, I believe, Harold Castro, single to right, which broke up the perfecto. And McKenzie went on, strikes out 11, was 2-5 and five this year, right-handed pitcher. And who would have thought that within a 24-hour, or even less than that, time frame that you could have had not only a no-hitter, but you almost had a perfect game, which we haven't seen in quite some time in Major League Baseball. Because even with all the no-hitters that we've had this year, not one has been a perfect game. I should think about that off the top of my head. You had John Means, Joe Musgrove, Wade Miley, Corey Kluber. You go on down the list, not one of those games this year has been a perfect game. So baseball as we see it now, to turn our attention to the pennant races, And we'll start in the AL East because as I mentioned earlier, you have a scenario where the Red Sox are coming into town and talk about a huge lift. Saturday, not only the Padres welcoming back Fernando Tatis, what about the Red Sox with Chris Sale pitching for the first time in two years against the Baltimore Orioles, five innings, two runs, scattered six hits, but didn't walk a batter and struck out eight. That was more than what the Red Sox, I'm sure, had expected as Sale tries to get back on the beam here to push his team into the postseason as they've been scuffling here a little bit, even with the Rays, and they've been playing well and certainly well against the Red Sox as of late. But with the Red Sox coming to town tomorrow as they'll have a day-night doubleheader against the Yankees here in the Bronx, and then they'll follow that with a game on Wednesday, you would think that having Sale back in the rotation to go along with Eduardo Rodriguez the Nathan Ivaldi's of the world, 
Martin Perez's, that he will be a guy that, although should be penciled in as number one, I'm sure he just wants to go in there, get his work, build up his arm, build up toward the end of this pennant race and get his team into October to try to make another push as they did back in 2018 when they won the World Series. So that's something to look out for here. But when we see the AL East, the Yankees right now are firing on all cylinders. They get another boost themselves as Garrett Cole will pitch today against the Angels. His first start in about two and a half weeks. Remember, he was shut down due to COVID. So having Cole back, let's see that little respite will propel him to pitch better because ever since the whole spider tack, sticky stuff, breakdown, he has been hot and cold up and down. Yes, he's had his great starts, i.e. the game in Houston, the complete game shutout where he struck out 12. But then he's had his bad games. The game in Tampa, actually two games against Tampa, the game against the Mets. So he hasn't been great as well, although we all know when you rank the starting pitchers in Major League Baseball, he is in your probably top two, maybe three, but I would think your top two when he is healthy and dealing the way he has been over the past few years. So they get Cole back, and the Yankees, like I said, with Gallo contributing now, Anthony Rizzo, he probably won't be back in the lineup, but you had Luke Voigt making a contribution, and he knows that pretty much his Yankee future right now is hanging in the balance because with Rizzo being a free agent, and when Rizzo comes back, you know he's going to patrol first base, and with all the experience and leadership that he brings to this team, if he does considerably well the way he had been prior to his COVID bout, you would think that the Yankees will do their best to try to re-sign him. Who knows what Rizzo's going to ask for as far as money, but you think that this is going to be his last big contract. But that's for down the road. But with Voight contributing, and obviously Stanton, Judge, making big contributions here, especially over the last few days, you wonder if this is going to be a Yankee blitz to the top of not only the wild card standings, but even the division. Because the Yankee schedule is looking pretty easy from here on out. And I'll get to those schedules in a second. We know that the AL Central is pretty much wrapped with a nice ribbon on top for the Chicago White Sox. And they lose Carlos Rodon as he's on the IL with a sore arm. That's something you have to pay attention to, White Sox fans. And even with their bullpen, we saw them spit the bit there yesterday with Liam Hendricks, or excuse me, two days ago. Hendricks not doing the job. Craig Kimbrell, he's a guy that you have to hold your breath times 10 when you watch him perform and why the Met fan wanted him. And I get that the Mets needed bullpen, but he scares me. And I'm sure the White Sox fans are going to experience that on top of what the Cub fan had to deal with the last couple of years. So he's one that you have to avert your eyes half the time when you watch him perform. And then out West, you have Houston and Oakland going at it where the athletics are just two and a half games, three in the loss out West. And when we look at the Schedules here, and we'll go immediate and then take a big picture. In the AL East, Tampa right now has a four-game set against the Orioles. They also have seven games against the Red Sox. Their schedule's a little bit tricky because in between that, they do have the White Sox. They have to play in Philadelphia. But then they end their season at Houston and at the Yankees. So you wonder if this is going to come down to that final stretch Let's say for division, or who knows, maybe even for a wild card, if the Red Sox and or Yankees leapfrog the Tampa Bay Rays. 
So Tampa certainly has a lot of work cut out for them, even though they do have some easy games in between. They have seven against the Tigers. They do play the Marlins at home for three games in that stretch. But with the Orioles with seven games, and like I said, they do have that tricky ending, something that we'll pay attention to. Red Sox, on the other hand, they have a favorable schedule themselves. When you look at Texas, Minnesota's on their schedule. They have to play at Cleveland. They still play Tampa seven times, including four in Tampa. They also have the Yankees another time at home after this stretch here. They have a ton of games with Baltimore, also Washington. So when you look at the AL East, and then with the Yankees having Minnesota for four games upcoming at home, they do have to go to Oakland and Anaheim, a West Coast trip in September, which could always be tricky. But they do have... Baltimore a ton of times, they have Texas on their schedule, Cleveland, six games against Toronto, and then they wrap up, like I mentioned, with Tampa at home. So both the Yankees and the Red Sox have favorable schedules down the stretch. Tampa, a little bit tricky, so we all know that that's going to be a Royal Rumble to the finish as to see who's going to be not only a division winner, which avoids the wild card game, but at the same time, the... Next two teams in the AL East are going to battle it out for Oakland when it comes to the wild card. And it could be Houston too because Oakland could take them in the division. And as we look at the AL West, Houston has games with Kansas City, seven that is. They still have to play Texas a couple of times, both on the road. They have the Anaheim Angels, of course. They play Oakland a ton, including the last three games of the season. And... That's pretty much their schedule on a whole. They do have to go to San Diego. Seattle, they play a ton of times. And Seattle, although they're in the race, and people should probably say J-Reels include them because they are in the wild card, but I got to see them inch a little bit closer to my liking. But Houston's schedule isn't that easy. And then Oakland has four upcoming against the White Sox. Then they play San Francisco, Seattle, and the Yankees in a big homestand before they go on the road against Detroit, Toronto. They do have games against... The Angels, as I mentioned, they close out their season at Seattle, at Houston. So the A schedule is very tricky here. And with the final three games with Oakland at Houston, that could possibly be for a division or even a wild card. So that's a race that we'll certainly keep our eyes on for the rest of the season. And then when we look at the NL, there's been a change of the guard at the top. And who would have thought that with everything that has happened with the Braves this year, no Mike Soroka. They lose Ronald Acuna Jr. to an ACL to probably the middle of next year. They did bring some reinforcements at the deadline, but nothing that's going to strike fear, you would think, in the opponents. I understand Adam Duvall, a guy that they had first time around. They bring him back. Remember also Marcelo Zuna, a guy who they re-signed, I believe, four years, $64 He's pretty much done for his career with that domestic violence incident that took place earlier on in the year, so you haven't seen him, and that's the reason why. But Atlanta has been able to Feast on the Nationals here recently, and they now have the top spot in the NL East, where the Phillies had a tough weekend against the Cincinnati Reds. Not only did they lose two out of three, but after that sweep against the Mets last week at home, they lose two out of three to the Dodgers before losing four out of six total, as I mentioned, in the back end of this homestand, losing that series to the Red Legs. So now you have a situation where Philly is sandwiched in between Atlanta in first, and then the Mets in third place, where the Mets did bounce back, showed some resilience. 
I got to admit, hand raised very high where they ended up sweeping the Nats. They were actually trailing in that first game 4-1, to one, which it had to be suspended, and then they came back and won. Had a rain out in the second game, so it had a doubleheader there on Thursday where they swept both games. They were luckily able to get out of that second game because they had a 4-1 lead in the seventh, because remember, it was a doubleheader, so it only played seven innings. The Nats tied, but then Alonzo had the walk-off home run there to end the game. And then the Dodgers, what could you say? They hung tight in the first two games. They were down 4-1 in game one against the Dodgers. They came back, but then lost in extra innings. They lost 2-1 in extras there on Saturday night behind Taiwan Walker, who pitched into the seventh with a no-hitter, but then that was broken up by Will Smith, who just beat up the Mets all weekend. And then what could you say about last night on ESPN? An embarrassing effort, 14-4. Max Scherzer, Carlos Carrasco couldn't get out of the second inning. You had Brandon Drury and Kevin Pillard. Two position players had to come in in relief, and that's all you need to know about that. So now the Mets go on the road to San Francisco and LA. So to think, they just got swept by the Dodgers. Now they got to fly out to the West Coast, where they probably landed just a few hours ago, to play the best team in baseball with the best record. And then from there, after the Wednesday getaway day, travel down to LA to play the Dodgers for four games. And let's see if they can exact any revenge for what took place this past weekend at City Field. And then, oh, by the way, after a day off flying back from that West Coast trip, they play three games against the Giants to cap off this 13-game stretch where it's just Dodgers, Giants. And if you want to take away those three games against the Nats, and I understand you can't erase those off the schedule, but in this stretch where they had 16 of 19 against Philly, L.A., San Francisco, they're 0 6 And no Javier Baez, who's on the I.L. with back spasms. We know that the scenario regarding Francisco Lindor looks dire. We're hoping for a September return. And when we thought we were going to have an early September return for one Jacob deGrom, he has to get shut down for another two weeks due to the arm injuries, his forearm tightness, whatever it is. So you're probably not going to see him sometime after the start of the NFL season. So as I mentioned last week, the old Michael Ray Richardson, former New York Nick, the famous quote that he had regarding his Nick team back in the early 80s, the ship be sinking. And the ship is gaining water fast and furious as the rest of the stretch here, 10 more games against the Giants and Dodgers, it does not look well for this Met team. And as we look at the schedules real quick, the Braves have six games against the Giants, so that actually bodes well for both Philly and the Mets if they want to try to make some hay and hang in this race. They also have to go to LA and San Diego, but the Braves, they'll finish up their seasons at home against the Phillies and Mets, so it could come down to the wire for either one of those teams. So the Braves schedule is certainly not easy, and you got to sprinkle in the Marlins, and I'm sure they probably have the Nats one other time. Here as we close out the season. And in Philly, they still have games in San Diego. They have Tampa coming to their building. And then at Milwaukee to start the Labor Day week. Other than that, their schedule is cake. Seven against the Diamondbacks. They still have to play Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Washington. Seven times. Oh, excuse me, six times. Colorado and Miami six times. If this isn't a cakewalk and designed for the Phillies to win the division based on the schedule, 
then there's going to be no hope for the Philly faithful because you do not have a schedule that's going to be more on your side to win a division than when you look up north to the Mets and what they have to deal with, as we already talked about just this 13-game stretch. And they still have to play the Brewers and they still have to play the Yankees and obviously Atlanta. So the Mets schedule, they also have two games in Fenway against the Red Sox. So despite them having to play eight against the Nats and nine against the Marlins, the Mets schedule compared to Philly and even Atlanta schedule, there's no comparison. So it is all ahead, even with one game behind the standings right now, for the Phillies to overtake this division and run away with it. And then out west, San Francisco, as we said, top spot. After the series against the Mets, they have four in Oakland. No, excuse me, they have three in Oakland. Then they come back east to play both the Mets and the Braves. Followed by four against Milwaukee. Then the Dodgers. Then they have a bit of an easy stretch where they have Colorado and then the Cubs on the road before coming home San Diego for four, Atlanta, San Diego again. In fact, they play San Diego 10 times in the month of September. So if San Diego's going to make up any ground against the front-running Giants, talk about it being right in front of them as well. Well, that's what it is for San Diego, and I'll get to them in a minute. The Dodgers have the Pirates, then the Mets, followed by San Diego on the road, Colorado, Atlanta, They do have San Francisco one more time up in the Bay Area. They also have two more series against San Diego in Petco Park. And they close out the season against Milwaukee. So their schedule isn't really that easy. Yeah, they do have Arizona and they go to Cincinnati. Who knows if they're going to be in the race by then. At Colorado, a little bit of a tricky schedule, but you think the LA Dodgers will come out scot-free. And then San Diego will close out their season Right now, they'll be in Colorado. They do have Philly and the Dodgers coming in before they play two series against the Anaheim Angels. They do go to Arizona again, where they just came from Arizona, obviously over the weekend. Houston comes into their building. They have to go to San Francisco for four. Actually, San Francisco for two series before San Francisco comes to them. They do have Atlanta at home. They have to go to St. Louis, who is now playing well and trying to get themselves back in the wild card mix as they've won six in a row. So the Padres schedule is going to be tricky here down the stretch as well. And we'll continue to keep our eyes on it, people. We'll monitor it all. A couple other notes real quick. Chris Davis retired from the Baltimore Orioles. He had one more year left on that seven-year, $161 million deal. I don't know what that means for the Orioles next year. Because he retires, is there a settlement? I don't know if he's going to get his full pay for the rest of this year and next year. But if that does free up some money, hopefully Baltimore could spend it wisely, and put it towards what they need, and they need everything. I mean, obviously they need pitching to start, but no more Chris Davis and a relief from my guy Jai in Baltimore, who I had on the podcast last year. Young prodigy, 18 years old, now 19, but a huge Oriole fan, so I know he's breathing a sigh of relief. And then to follow up on last week, that incident in Colorado with the mic picking up of a fan yelling out the N-word, well, it has been determined that the fan was not yelling an N-word more than once, I might add. He was actually trying to get the attention of the mascot, Dinger. And although when I heard it, and I heard it multiple times, it didn't sound like Dinger to me. But upon investigation from security and the powers that be at Coors Field, 
it showed up. They even spoke to the fan, and it was confirmed, people in the section, etc., that he did not yell out the N-word. It was Dinger, the mascot. And even when Lewis Brinson watched the video, he thought the same thing. He says, it sounds like the N-word to me, but we have to go with what the security and the investigation and what they found that was not the case. So we move on, and uh, hopefully that that was it, and we won't have to deal or even witness any other incidents in that regard. So that's what we have there with the baseball people. We'll turn our attention now. I'll get into the NFL. I know the NFL fan will rejoice. Oh, about time, Jay Reels. Nobody wants to talk about Luka Doncic or even Kawhi Leonard signing their long-term deals. And I'll get to that later on. Or even what's happening in the NHL. Tennis on the horizon and a few other things. But as far as football goes, and as we all know, I am not big into the NFL preseason people. I can't get into it. I'm sorry. I know that people could say, well, look at Jay Reels. The Steelers are now 2-0. What am I supposed to do? A cartwheel? And how they came from behind against the Eagles there. They were down 16-3 and they won 24-16. And okay, when you look at the former Ohio State quarterback and the one Dwayne Haskins throwing a touchdown there and looks like he's actually played better than Mason Rudolph early on in this preseason. I haven't watched, but can we get a few more reps? Can we get a few more in-game situations other than the first preseason game for the Eagles who probably didn't have anybody on the field. And for the most part, you're not going to see any of these starters on the field. Although we have seen some stretches here where players have gotten some burn, especially with the young rookies. And that's where I want to pretty much target right now. A lot of the number one picks, especially the top three, when you look at Jacksonville's Trevor Lawrence, the Jets' Zach Wilson, and the San Francisco 49ers' Trey Lance, all got off to pretty good and some electrifying results. But at the same time, these kids are works in progress. We can't just base two series or even a half on these kids. You want to throw in Justin Fields, the 11th pick of the draft, who had a lot of reps in his game against the Miami Dolphins. But what we've seen so far, Jacksonville, we know the promise and the franchise is going to be on the shoulders of the former Clemson quarterback. And despite getting a sack and a fumble there early on in the opening drive, he recovered to play two series, went six for nine, had a nice 35-yard pass, touch pass to Marvin Jones. That was your main highlight there in the game. I believe it was on Saturday with uh, Jacksonville, I don't even know who they played. Uh, listen, I'm not watching these games. I'm watching some of the highlights. You think I'm going to pay attention to who they're playing against? But yes, I did follow Zach Wilson a little bit here from a local standpoint. Efficient in his debut in his two series against the Giants. A lot of the talk leading up to that game was the scrimmage between the green and white the week before to where he was 11 for 24, had two interceptions, did not look Good. His decision-making was certainly questionable at that time. But here's a guy that it's pretty much his job to lose because it's not as if he has a Josh McCown or even a Joe Flacco who was on the team last year, a guy that who has been in the league, a journeyman backup who is pretty much hovering and looking over his shoulder. The Jet backups as of right now are guys named Mike White and James Morgan. And your fourth stringer is Josh Johnson, who's been on a million teams and most recently was in the XFL a year ago. Now, I believe he was on an NFL roster last year, but a guy who has been on several rosters and has not done much 
in his NFL career. But Zach Wilson, it looks like it's going to be his job and let the growing pains begin. Why not? He's your number two pick overall. They shouldn't have a guy. Yeah, maybe they should have a serviceable guy behind them. Someone that, in case, God forbid, that the kid gets hurt, that they could put that has some reputation or some resume in the league that at least could be competent. But when you have guys like Mike White and James Morgan, who together probably has as many completions in the NFL as I do, and that's zero. And I may be off on that, but you get the gist, people. So, Wilson, let's see what he does here in his next game as they, I believe they're playing in Green Bay. And Green Bay now has a scenario where their quarterback of a couple of years ago in Jordan Love, who got sacked the other day, had an MRI, which came back clean, but it was his shoulder to where right now it's day-to-day, uncertain on whether or not he'll play against the Jets in this upcoming game. Coach Matt LaFleur said that it is possible that he could play in the game. But remember, Aaron Rodgers, who's standing on the sidelines and is not dressed, and you don't think he's going to dress even for this game, they'll have their third stringer in there. But Jordan Love is a guy you got to keep your eye on because although Rodgers is going to be on the team and he's going to start, but you want to see some development, you want to see some growth here, especially to get as many reps as he possibly can during this training camp and during this preseason. So for him to sit out, any other games, remember there's only three games in the preseason, so he has this one upcoming, which he may miss, and then he has the final one. So Packer fans certainly want to get a glimpse of what this kid could do, and based on what we saw the other day, was incomplete. Now to get to Trey Lance, who saw his first action as a Niner, did have a beautiful 80-yard touchdown pass that he threw to wide receiver Trent Sherfield, where he rolled out left and was able to throw across his body, pass the seam into the arms of the wide receiver for a long touchdown. But overall, his performance was shaky. Not only based on his stats as he went 5 for 14 for 128 yards, and again, 80 of those came on one throw. But for the eight drives that he was in the game, showed that he's a little bit green, or maybe even just a little bit, a lot green, was unable to run the two-minute offense when it was called upon off target on some of his throws, drop passes by wide receivers, which isn't really his fault, but on the stat sheet doesn't look good, sacked four times, but what do you expect? He's a kid that's going to wheel, deal, somewhat of a gunslinger mentality based on what he did at North Dakota State, and despite the incumbent Jimmy Garoppolo going to be the starter come week one, but the Niners want to get a good look at what they're future looks like and having a guy like Lance throw the ball over the lot try to make plays with his legs a little bit maybe not some great reads some off-target throws that's pretty much what you're going to get with any rookie quarterback one who is expected to show a lot of ability and not only that but also is very raw at the position we'll continue to monitor that as we go along through this preseason And then after a shaky start himself, Justin Fields got going to where he chipped in with a couple of touchdowns. I believe one of them was running. But the one thing that you have to wonder, and in listening to the postgame, we know Justin Fields going back to his days at Ohio State, a kid who does have a good arm, but also can run with his legs. He likes putting pressure on the defense. He's allowing himself to play a little backyard football with his receivers. But the one thing that he did say is that he's best playing out of the pocket. Now that may be a good thing because as the play breaks down, he's able to improvise. 
But it's not good because what he's trying to tell you there is that he's not comfortable in the pocket right now. And he's not a six foot five, six foot six quarterback that can overlook the offensive line and take a real good look downfield. He's a guy that's six two, six three. Yes, a little bit compact in his delivery. A guy, like I said, he's going to make plays with his legs as well as his arm. And as he said in the post game, he'd rather play outside the pocket than in the pocket. Again, he's young, drafted, first round. We get he has a long and hopefully healthy career ahead of him. But if you're a Bear fan, that's not what you want to hear. You want to see him play in the pocket because we all know that's how you're going to win Super Bowls. It's going to be kind of hard to play your game outside of the pocket for the most part than play inside the pocket. You want to play inside out and not outside in. Especially at that position. And then even Tua Tagovailoa, he performed in that game against the Bears was 8 for 11, 99 yards. This is going to be a big year for Tua. He's a guy that's going to have to take a leap to show that he could not only play the position, but could be the long-term answer for this Dolphin team. Remember, they drafted him fifth, one spot ahead of Justin Herbert, and Herbert has shown his progress and shown what he's capable of doing in this league just in his rookie year out in Los Angeles. So Tua is definitely going to have a lot on him to deliver this team close to that 10-6 and record as they did last year, maybe even a step further. So a lot of the spotlight's going to be on the quarterback there to see what the Dolphins can do in year three of Brian Flores and year two of Tua Tagovailoa. And a couple other news and notes outside of that. I know the Steelers made a trade and a smart trade for Joe Schobert, the linebacker from Jacksonville, formerly of the Cleveland Browns. He signed a big deal there last year, I believe five years, somewhere in the vicinity of, geez, off the top of my head, I don't even know, maybe $50, $60 million. So with some flexibility in the cap, him making $7 million this year and having $4 million left, they're able to make the trade to where they bring in Schobert, who is a very good pass coverage linebacker. If you recall, a couple of years ago in the game against the Browns, that was the Mason Rudolph game with Miles Garrett, where Schobert had a couple of picks in that game. So as we've seen then for the Steeler fan of years past, and then hopefully now, familiarity with the AFC North, pass coverage skills, experience, He'll replace Vince Williams, who retired this offseason. A very smart pickup by the Steelers, and hopefully he'll pay dividends pretty much from the start to go along with Devin Bush, who will be your quarterback and run stopper on that Steeler defense. And then you have Seattle. They had to cut Alden Smith, what else is new? Dating back to an incident in Tennessee where he approached a man allegedly and attacked him because of a relationship with a relative of his. So the Alden Smith Saga continues, and who knows if he's going to get another shot in this league. He's a guy that had the most sacks in his first two years as a player in NFL history. And whatever his demons, hopefully he could take that cold, long, hard look in the mirror and try to figure him out. Because first and foremost, you want him to get healthy. You want him to be better. Football should be the farthest thing from his mind. But the Seahawks had to cut ties with Alden Smith, and who knows if that's the last time we're going to see him. So that's what you got in the league, people. To keep you abreast and up to date there. And then lastly, I forgot, I have to mention this with the Saints because there's some turmoil going on down there. And we all know with Drew Brees' retirement and not knowing who the heir apparent is going to be under center starting this year, is it going to be Jameis Winston, the former number one pick overall back in, what was that, 2015, I want to say off the top of my head, where it didn't work out in Tampa, although it has a ton of talent, but as we all know, 
He's a guy that could bring you back and put you in a game and compete. But at the same time, he could also throw a game away with his interceptions. Or is it going to be the hybrid in a one Taysom Hill, a guy who could play quarterback, a guy who could play running back, a guy who could also play wide receiver. And what you saw from the first preseason game between the both of them, six turnovers to where Sean Payton was asked, hey, any definitive angle you're going to go to as far as Winston or Hill? And as he said, he has not yet determined that. And rightfully so. So not only do you have the scenario where Breeze is long gone and then Michael Thomas, we talked about that emotional tug of war, getting the surgery in June where he's not probably going to play until the start of the season or maybe soon thereafter where he probably should have had the surgery sometime in the spring. All right, that was his choice. Peyton, obviously, to his disliking and his dismay. But on top of that, you have a situation on their defense where they had cornerback Patrick Robinson retire. Remember, they cut Janoris Jenkins, who I believe is in Tennessee right now. So they have no starting corners to play in that secondary where if they don't get any type of reinforcements, and I'm sure they're going to wait for the dreaded waiver wire and cut day, which will be probably the final few days of August. Because remember, there's a two-week window between the final preseason game and the actual start of the NFL season. So they're going to have to wait until... I'm sure a veteran on some team gets cut, doesn't make the roster, and then they're going to have to sign him and get him implemented and acclimated to their system. On top of that, they also are going to lose their kicker, Will Lutz, for probably most, if not the whole entire 2021 season due to an injury I believe that he had previously last year. So, boy, the Big Easy right now isn't easy at all when it comes to the football team as they are hurting for certain not only with their wide receiver position, their quarterback position right now, and again, it was only one game, so you can't just base it all on that, but not a good start for those two guys, and then their secondary and their special teams, man, it does not get any worse than that. So just some news and notes there to kick us off there for the football fan. I know they're salivating and chomping at the bit, so instead of me just dismissing it and saying, ah, who cares, and let's just wait till week one, I hope I was able to satiate your football appetite with the... What's going on in the gridiron? All right, now let's talk about what's happening in the association as the NBA has made some news this past week. And just, of course, minutes after I signed off of the podcast last week, we had Luka Doncic, who signed his Supermax deal, five years, $207 million. And he was able to get that and break records. I know people say, what about Trey Young? He signed for five years and $207 million as well. But... The thing with Doncic is that he had made two All-NBA first teams, which has never been done in the history of the sport, at the tender age of 22. So that's why he got his Supermax deal. And Young, I believe he was probably, if I had to guess, he may have been All-NBA third team. That's why he probably got his Supermax deal, because if you fall in the top 15 players of the sport for that particular year, right away you get that kicker in the contract to get that Supermax deal. But for Luka to get it, in the frame of his first three seasons in the NBA with two all-NBA first teams. I mean, geez. You know Mark Cuban was more than ready, willing, and able to sign over that check and that contract over to Luka. And in fact, they had to fly out to Slovenia because this was during, or I believe maybe even Beijing, because this was at the tail end of the Olympics where Slovenia was playing for the bronze and for Cuban to fly out there to make sure they got 
Luka Doncic's John Hancock on that contract, I'm sure, brought big smiles not only to Doncic, but to Cuban and the whole Mavs organization, Jason Kidd, the new head coach, etc. So he got that to deal with. But the other big contract that was signed was Kawhi Leonard, who re-upped with the Clippers four years, $176 million. Not a surprise when you think about it, although there had been some rumblings during the playoffs to where Leonard may be headed to. A lot of talk may have been gone down to South Florida and Miami as a rumored destination for Kawhi. But now as the dust settled, he does re-up for this money for these years. Of course, he has that player option for the last year, so he could opt out of that. But now here's the burning question when you look at Kawhi Leonard, and it has to be asked, despite the fact that he's a two-time finals MVP, he has the hardware, the two rings, Toronto, the conquering hero that he was up there, the shot over Joel Embiid in the Eastern Conference semifinals. We know the whole pomp and circumstance. But when you look at the last two years, What happened in the bubble? Up 3-1 against Denver. Gagging that. And he did not play well in those games. It's not as if he shot lights out and then everybody else folded. Look at the numbers, especially in that game seven against Denver. Then last year. Postseason, all right, he hurts his knee in the game against Utah. Game four, what do you expect? It happens. You can't knock him for that. You can't get on his case, etc. We find out later on that he had a slight tear in the ACL. Need surgery, okay. Now he's on the mend. Maybe one of the reasons why he didn't go elsewhere. He probably wanted to finish the job here. And I'm sure there are a lot of teams that, although maybe climbing for services, but felt, uh uh-uh. He's getting up there in age. A lot of wear and tear. We certainly don't want to invest in a guy that's only going to play 50 games in a regular season and right now is a toss-up in the postseason. Which begs the question. If you're a Clipper fan, And you know the history of that franchise. And granted, you finally reached to heights that you've never seen in making the Western Conference Finals. That's right, the Western Conference Finals. We all know it's about getting to the NBA Championship and winning it. But with the last two years, and knowing that Kawhi is the poster boy and the poster child for load management, a guy that's going to play 55 games out of the 82, maybe even 60 for that matter, that he's going to look out for his own health. And to a certain extent, I understand, rightfully so, but at the same time, a one Michael Jordan, as I like to reference, during that three-peat, the second one from 96 to 98, when there were 304 games total during that stretch, three years, 304 games, three championship runs, regular season, Postseason, NBA Finals. How many of those games did Michael Jordan miss? A big, fat donut. I understand Michael Jordan comes once every 50 years. Or a player of that magnitude, a player of that DNA. But if you're a Clipper fan, and you're looking to see your team get to the next level, And as I said, despite the back of his basketball card and everything that he's done, but what he has shown you as a Clipper, and we know how great he is. I'm not trying to knock this guy by any stretch, but can you 100% fully trust this man to not only play in a bunch of regular season games, 
to tune up for a long postseason that I get he's going to take a lot of games off because, oh, I got to prepare my body for the postseason? Well, maybe why don't he pick up the phone and call Michael Jordan and see how he did it? Or a lot of the players of yesteryear where these guys played 78, 80, 82 games a season and long, enduring, grueling postseasons. And I don't want to hear that, well, that's them and this is me. Okay, you can hear that and you could say to yourself, all right, fine, but I want more. Because as a fan, not only do I pay you and watch you play, but I expect the greatness that you've shown in San Antonio and in Toronto here in LA. And before people can say, oh, Jay Reels can't tell a player what to do, that's his body, whatever. I'm not saying that he has to perform for me. I'm not a Clipper fan. But as a basketball fan, as an NBA fan, you do want to see more. 60 games is not cut it. Or just gearing up for the postseason doesn't slice it. So if you have a shot to be a one seed, to have home court, and we understand home court may not be the same as it was once upon a time, but let's just say for argument's sake, you're neck and neck with the Lakers for a one seed. And it's 10 games to go and you're tied for the top spot. What is Kawhi going to do? Oh, I'm going to take five of those games off because I got to prepare for the postseason? That's what I'm talking about. I want to see some urgency. I want to see some, yes, I want this one seed because not only would it be important for us, but if we play the Lakers in an NBA final, <laughs> NBA final, excuse me, in a conference final, which we know the building may be overrun by Laker fans as it is, but you still have that home court. Your season ticket holders will have those tickets first. It's up to them to not pawn them off to the Laker fan. But to have those games in your building, is it going to mean a lot to him down the stretch knowing that, geez, I got to be in these games to not only show to my teammates, but to the organization, the investment that they made in me, and of course the fans to know that I am there for them 100%. That's the question. And if you're going to ask me that, I'm going to say, nope. I could see him taking those games off down the stretch. And even if it's not the Lakers, let's say it's Utah or Phoenix for one seed or even for a two or three seed. And as we heard last year, I don't want to say they were tanking games, but maybe they weren't going all out because they were trying to avoid the Lakers in the first round by playing in the 4-5 matchup because they know if they were going to be a three seed with the Lakers at seven, they would have had to play them in the second round. And as we saw, that wasn't the case, but that was the word on the street where the Clippers were not playing their hardest because they wanted to avoid the Lakers at all costs. Well, based on reputation and based on recent history, it certainly raises an eyebrow and begs that question to be asked. And my answer is, hell no. I can't trust Kawhi to be there down the stretch of a regular season. Postseason will be there if he's healthy. But if it means a one seed, a two seed, home court, whatever, uh uh-uh, I I don't see it. And that's an injustice. Because as I said, he owes it to that organization, his coach, teammates, fans, etc. That's it. And then you had a couple other signings. Well, actually one signing and another trade, which was a big one. Speaking of the Clippers, and I'll go there first, Eric Bledsoe, who's a guy that has shown glimpses and can play in the league, but in big spots, never delivers. 
I get he can play some defense. I know he can make some big shots at times, but he is just too Jekyll and Hyde for me as far as his play on the court is concerned. But they trade away Patrick Beverly, which was a good move by the Clippers in this regard. Beverly, we know he's a fiery player. He's a feisty player. He's a guy that when all is right, he is good to have on your team, but he's a front-running player. He's a guy that when things start to go awry, when things start to go wrong, he starts with terrible body language, flailing his arms, and then even cheap-shotting players, as we saw over the years, whether you're Russell Westbrook many years ago when he was in Houston, or even just here in the last game, where he got into it with Chris Paul, where he shoved him from behind, which was inexplicable. So they ship him, Rajon Rondo, and a center big man, Daniel Oturu, to Memphis to bring back Bledsoe. I think it's a very good move. Bledsoe is a little bit more... I, I would say he's a considerable upgrade over Beverly because at least he gives you a little bit more offense. Maybe Beverly gives you more intensity, although Bledsoe can play good defense. But again, I see too much inconsistency with Bledsoe than I would like if I'm now a Clipper fan rooting for him moving forward. And remember, he was drafted by the Clippers many moons ago. So it comes full circle where he's back on the West Coast trying to build that team toward a championship. And then Dennis Schrader, who was looking for a contract north of $100 million, and although the Lakers were willing to offer 84 he shut that down because he thought that he was a $100 million guy. And even though toward the end there seemed to be a disconnect between he and the organization for whatever that is, I don't know. But he signs a one-year, $5.9 million deal with the Celtics. Celtics need a point guard in the worst way. He's a guy that, again, could show you glimpses, too inconsistent, can be fiery, can be a guy that shows that irrational confidence that he'll take a big shot, he's not afraid of the moment, and let's see if his one-year in Boston can pan out when you have the young guys on the team, a la Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, etc. So... For what that's worth, we'll see if the Schroeder signing is more boom than bust. And that's what you have with the NBA people. couple of quickies before we sign off. NHL's rather quiet, although you did have one of the top players in the sport needing surgery for a wrist which has not been disclosed, but the Toronto Maple Leafs and their big-time forward, Austin Matthews, Had some discomfort over the past week where during his on-ice training, for whatever the reason, started to increase. The pain was intolerable. He met up with the organization, the team doctors, and he felt it was right for him to get the surgery now. That rest and just recovery wasn't going to help. So for him to be shut down now for a minimum, they say, of six weeks, certainly looks like he's not going to or it's going to cut close to the home opener, which is against the Montreal Canadiens. And you know they're going to be just foaming at the mouth to get some type of revenge against the Canadians. As we all know, they were up three games to one in the opening round of the postseason of this past Stanley Cup playoff, and then they spit the bit, losing the next three. Not that that one game is going to, whether they win 100 to nothing and Matthews comes back and scores 15 goals, that is not going to erase the demons and the pain of what took place, what was it, in mid to late May. But not having Matthews in the lineup is certainly going to hurt and for who knows for how long. So we'll see if that impedes and encroaches into the regular season. 
Joe Thornton, a guy who's been in the league since he was 18 years old and is now 42 years of age, signs a one-year deal, I believe only $700,000, and I'm sure he's made a ton of money. If you've been in the league and played in the NHL for this long, you've made a ton of money with the Florida Panthers. And he liked the direction of the Panthers. I'm sure he looked at some of the acquisitions that they had, in particular Sam Reinhart, a guy who was a number two pick overall back in 2014. They re-signed him for a three-year deal, average annual value of, I believe, $6.5 million. They have the young goalie there who made some waves here against the Lightning, although they lost in the first round, as we saw. But he decided to sign with the Florida Panthers because he liked the direction of the organization and feels as if they have cup potential. So we'll see what Thornton does as he gets back to the East and plays in the Eastern Conference. Remember, he played with the Bruins the first, I believe, seven or eight years of his career, then played pretty much the predominantly the rest in San Jose before that he played in, geez, I don't remember off the top of my head. Was it Arizona? Was it, wasn't Las Vegas? The team will lose me right now. Forgive me, Joe Thornton and the NHL fan, but had a quick respite before now going to South Florida. So we'll see if his experience and grit, toughness will translate to the Panthers as they have the good young players down there. Alexander Barkov, also Jonathan Huberdeau, And I did mention Reinhardt now being part of the mix, which was a big lift. He will join forces with the number one pick of that same class in 2014, the defenseman Aaron Ekbland. So you have both the number one and two pick overall in Florida as they'll be teammates. And let's see if Florida makes another leap as they had a very good regular season. But again, 56 games, not much you can get crazy about. So once we get the season kicked, off sometime in the middle of October. We'll see if the Panthers have some success and make themselves available for the postseason and have a deep, long postseason run. So, obviously, that's a way down the road. And then one sad note, as Tony Esposito, the former Blackhawk, known as Tony O, 15 shutouts as a rookie back in the 1969 season. Think about that. 15 shutouts as a rookie. Rookie of the Year, called a trophy, never won a Stanley Cup, played in a Stanley Cup, of course. The brother of Phil Esposito passes away earlier this week due to pancreatic cancer. So now we're starting to get a couple of these greats and a couple of former athletes, whether it was J.R. Richard last week. Now we have this scenario with Tony Esposito passing away. Seemed like for quite some time, especially in 2020, it seemed like every other day, one of the greats or just another athlete was succumbing to whatever maladies or just tragedy. And then now here of recent vintage, a couple of former players making their transition. Thoughts, prayers go out to the entire Esposito family. Of course, Phil, the Hockey Hall of Famer, as well as Tony Esposito in the Hockey Hall of Fame himself. I believe one of the 100 greatest players of all time as they had that a couple of years ago. So saddened by that loss as hockey loses an all-time great. And then lastly, let me get to Roger Federer as we're not going to see him participate the U.S. Open in two weeks, pretty much right here in my backyard, Flushing Meadow. Quoted that he'll miss many months as he needs to have another surgery on his right knee. I believe he had it done twice last year. Remember, he came back and played at the French Open. He bowed out early. A lot of people were not happy about that where he just decided to say goodbye and not even perform, but then here at Wimbledon did play into the 
fourth round, got knocked off, and then now, as we thought we would possibly see him at the U.S. Open, we're not going to. He's going to miss many months. Who knows what that means? Does that mean a handful of months? Does it mean six months, a year? I guess we'll be updated as we go along, but not seeing Federer there, who just turned 40 a week ago Sunday. And who knows how much left he has in the tank. We know that the heart and even the head to a certain extent wants to continue, but if the body says, "Uh uh-uh, we cannot, as Charles Barkley eloquently said many years ago, Father Time is undefeated. So who knows what this means for Federer? Does this mean that Father Time is the clock ready to strike 12 for him? Knowing Federer, he may want to gut out another season or a couple other tournaments, who knows? So we're not going to see him here at the U.S. Open performing, and that's going to be in two weeks, and of course we'll talk about that down the road. And then lastly, for those who are looking forward to seeing Errol Spence Jr., the young welterweight, who a lot of people look at one of the jewels of boxing, and there aren't many people that you can wrap your arms around when it comes to this sport, as we've seen over the last few years. Obviously, no more Floyd Mayweather. You look at the heavyweight division, that's a disaster. I know there's a couple other fighters off the top of my head that I'm forgetting about at the moment. But for that fight, which was to be this Saturday against Manny Pacquiao, you had the old versus the new. And this was for the... WBC IBF welterweight title defense of Errol Spence well due to a retinal tear in Spence's eye he's going to need surgery that fight is going to be postponed or at least that matchup but Pacquiao is going to face a gentleman by the name of Jordanus Ugas I wouldn't know that guy if he fell on me so is that going to bring any eyeballs to the sets knowing that it is Manny Pacquiao he does have a huge following as we all know in the Philippines And we all know that there is a huge contingent of Filipinos that live here in the United States. Is that going to be enough for people to be excited to see what he could do against a guy that I've never heard of? You know I'm not going to watch. And even if Spence and Pacquiao were fighting in my living room, would I watch? Maybe just to see Spence, Pacquiao. We understand. A lot of heart. We know his career. The back of his boxing card, if there is such. But... As we know, boxing is pretty much a dying breed right now. And maybe if they fight somewhere down the road or in the future, I'll keep an eye and pay attention to it. But with this upcoming fight, I have zero interest. Uh, It's all there is to it. But I had to bring it up only because Spence is a name in the fight game right now. Everybody knows who Pacquiao is and it would have been interesting to see to have that young buck going against the old-timer in a one Manny Pacquiao. So... That will not be the case this coming Saturday. And then let's get to my hero and zero of the week to wrap it all up. My hero of the week goes to Hensel Emmanuel Donato. He's a basketball player from Kissimmee, Florida by way of the Dominican Republic. He received his first Division I offer to play at Tennessee State. But here's the kicker, if you want to call it that. He has one arm. He lost his left arm at the age of six when a wall fell on him. And just for him to be extended an offer to play collegiately, who knows if any other school is going to come out of the woodwork to come calling or even offer a scholarship. Now, the kid has to be talented if any school for that matter, whether it's Division One, Two, Three, it doesn't matter. But knowing that he has an offer on the table, and of course, he was just more than ecstatic, dream come true, etc. 
you know that this has to be a thrill of a lifetime for this kid who is six foot five. I've never seen him play, so I couldn't even tell you. But knowing that he has an offer, and let's see if any others will come about and maybe get a chance to even see him play, let alone practice. I mean, we would like to see what he looks like and how he's able to perform on the court. But Hansel Emmanuel Donato, you are my hero of the week, and I wish you all the best of luck. And my zero of the week goes to Judge Gloria Martinez Rizzo, who is being suspended indefinitely by the WBA for not only her highly controversial scorecard, which I'll get to, in the Michael Fox-Gabriel Mastre interim welterweight title fight, but also the racist tweets on her Twitter account that were discovered and lighted the aftermath of this fight. First, the fight itself, she turned in a scorecard of 117-110, where the other two judges had Mastre winning. The two judges had it 115-112 and 114-113. So to think, 117-110, well, what fight was she watching? And most observers who watched that fight thought that Fox clearly won. And even had a second round knockdown in the fight. Fox said that he'd been robbed. What the heck's going on? So compound that with tweets that were dug up back in 2020, which of course have since been deleted, making racist remarks towards Michelle Obama and LeBron James. I mean, talk about adding insult to injury, or in this case, significant insult to injury. Because for all the criticism that boxing gets with its notorious reputation for corruption, questionable scoring abouts, we've seen it time after time after time in the history of this sport. But to compound that with racist remarks through Twitter and then going back to erase those tweets, way to go, Gloria Martinez Rizzo. You are my zero of the week. And that'll close out episode 209. Just some quick housekeeping before I go. You know that I'm grateful, sincerely to all you guys for downloading, streaming, listening to this podcast. I truly 1000% love that you take your time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. I do not take that lightly. I do not take that for granted. And as I said at the very top, I hope you've had the opportunity to go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. On wherever you get your podcasts, please throw me a few stars, scribble or type in a little review. You could do that on all those platforms that I mentioned at the very top. And it's going to increase the visibility. I'm trying to get my name out there, trying to show the world that this is not just a niche podcast. This is not just a fly-by-night thing. I've been doing this over three years, going on three and a half as of the 1st of September. And I'm not going anywhere. So if you could go ahead and do that, if you haven't done so already, take a screenshot of it, send it to... Everybody on social media, tag me on social media and I'll segue that to either J Reels or the J Reels podcast on Instagram, Twitter, J Reels one, just a number, Facebook, the J Reels podcast, hit me up in my DMs, questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, or shoot me an email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. I'll be sure to follow up with you ASAP. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, nickel, dime, a dollar, I don't care what it is, it's going 100% to the upkeep of the website, the production of this podcast, all the equipment, everything that it entails. Because whether you do or do not know, and of course, from the bottom of my heart, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate that. 
because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about people, it's been in my DNA since day one, since birth, since I came out of the womb, I love talking sports, I love dissecting it, analyzing it, sharing my thoughts, opinions, analysis on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, even the octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.